Bibles to Isaiah 43 this morning. Isaiah 43. We'll just cover the first seven verses today of Isaiah 43. As we open the Word of God, I want you to think about something. What does it mean for your core relationship with God when He is working against you, punishing you for your sin? And what I mean is God is on the attack in your life. If a human being goes on the attack in your life, it typically means we're through. I am done with you. I am attacking you, and I want to be done. With God, it means the very opposite for his children, for his chosen. In Isaiah 42 last week, if you look two verses ahead of where we're reading today, you will see God's judgment on his people Israel. He asks, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways they would not walk and whose laws they would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger, he is on the attack, and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, but now this week we read, the other side of that equation when God is on the attack. The Lord will speak of his other side, the other side of his relationship with Israel. They will go through fire. They will go through flood. I think that speaks of the the vast variety of trials they will experience. But he will go with them. I want you to notice the structure of today's text with me. Look at verse number 1. Uh, and verse 1 and verse 7, there's like this envelope, these parentheses marking out this text. And it talks about him as creator. Verse 1, the first two lines, the three, three lines, it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Now drop down to verse number 7. At the end of the verse, it says, Whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God is going to assert some things today based on his status as creator. He created it, he owns them. Uh, If he created it, he owns it. If he created them, he owns them. Now, the other thing I want you to see is there's two fear nots. Two commands, fear not. The first one occurs in the middle of verse number one. Fear not, and it's followed by the reason, for I have redeemed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Is this the way we redeem a coupon? I don't think so. Um, this, this is much more tender than that. Look at verse number five. Fear not, verse number five, fear not, for I am with you. So God is creator. He's saying to his people Israel, who, uh, against whom he is on the attack, to not be afraid. Why? Because I have redeemed you, and to not be afraid because I am with you. In the first two verses, we'll see that God created and called Israel, and he promises to comfort them even though judgment is coming. In verses 3 and 4, we will see the preference God gives to the people of God versus the, uh, the, the rest of the world. The people of God have a different standing with him. In verses 5 and 6, we see that there is going to be a glorious end times homecoming. And his people will be a joy to all, uh, 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 this homecoming will be a joy to all generations. So, God is about to attack Israel. That's what this prophecy is being written about, what is going to be hitting Israel But God will go through his punishment with them. Let's read verse 1 through 7. I'm in Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let's pray. God, you are our creator. Far above that, I would recognize on behalf of Surely the vast, vast majority, if not the entirety of this congregation, you have also called us by your name. We are your children. We have come to faith in Christ. I trust I speak for the vast majority in that today. And Father, when we sin against you, you have remedial punishments, and they are good and right. Help us, God, to recognize your hand when hard things are punishment. Lord, I know not all hard things are punishment, but when it comes, help us to recognize your hand and help us to be assured of the truths of this passage that we are still precious in your eyes. We are still honored by you and we are loved through and through. Bless us to understand how you work with the godly versus how you work with your enemies. And God, help us not to confuse the two. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we begin our study today, God proclaims himself as Israel's creator, redeemer, and sustainer in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, the the audience is Israel, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And he speaks of the upcoming trials as waters and fires. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. They'll not wash you away utterly. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God identifies himself as creator. His creation of Israel, his creation of the world, his creation of you is not an accident. It is not incidental. It is not coincidental. God formed you intentionally, and he lets his nation, his people Israel, know this. God identifies himself as the redeemer in verse number one. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Those are all three, I believe, referring to the same action on God's part. Uh, This is not like me owning a coupon where I redeem the coupon for what belongs to me. Uh, I think the picture from the Bible would be the kinsman redeemer. Do you remember Ruth and Boaz and Naomi? And, and Ruth is back in the promised land uh, from Moab. And, and her, uh, her, her, they have no men in their lives. They have no one to, to claim their land. And it was the opportunity and perhaps even the duty, as I understand it, of the next of kin to be a kinsman redeemer and to be there for Ruth. Now, uh, Boaz was not the next of kin. He was second to next of kin. And so he went to the city gate, and he established that the next of kin did not want to exercise his opportunity or obligation to be the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz then took in Ruth, called her by name. She became his wife. 
And it is that tenderness of a kinsman redeemer that when God says, fear not, I have redeemed you, Israel is sinful and needy. And God said, do not be afraid, I have redeemed you. You are my people, you are my nation. And, and individually, I would apply that to us as well, that we are helpless, that we are in need of a redeemer, someone to take us in spiritually. And God assures us that that is his work. Notice the priority of unconditional grace here. This is for national Israel. There's been no national statement of repentance. Uh, These these atrocities by Babylon where they're going to carry them away into exile have not even started taking place. Isaiah will die before that happens. Uh, The... um, uh, but but, but the, uh, without any statement of repentance, God says, I am going to work in your midst as a nation. The people who received these prophecies uh, were all probably dead and gone by the time they're fulfilled. Any deliverance from Babylon, any deliverance from the east, uh, as far as any near-term prophecies. They certainly are dead and gone before the full prophecy of bringing all of God's children from all the four corners of the world is going to take place. And, and I would just say, note this, that for them receiving this prophecy, God did not promise them an easy life. He did not promise them in this lifetime that they would see, live to see the sons and daughters of Israel coming from all the four corners of the earth to a nation that loves and serves God. God instead invited them, and I believe the Bible invites you to participate in an epic that takes place over the time of this age that is unfolding and culminating in an end-time regathering, an end-time homecoming. Will these people who are dead and gone that receive this prophecy, will they be again alive to enjoy this? In my understanding, yes, they will. It'll be in the millennial kingdom of Christ when all Israel comes together and all Israel is serving God. Not all the world in the millennium is going to love God and trust God. But I do understand national Israel will love and trust God and have their Messiah in their midst, and it will be a glorious time. Uh, The Bible invites you to have faith that that day is coming. The Bible invites you to play your part in this unfolding epic of God over time, over history, that will culminate in these events. And when that day comes... You will rejoice over every sacrifice you endure in this time, over every disciplinary action that God brings into your life and works in your life. You will rejoice. Let's understand uh, and get into just a little bit of what the Bible teaches about suffering as a believer. It's an implication of election. It's an impl- implication of God's choosing that God gives divine protection from the punishment he has allowed. Look at verse number 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. The water and the fire, as I understand it, are speaking of the spectrum. They're about as wide apart as you could get in terms of elements of destruction. Water and fire. The spectrum of the destruction. And and in context, that God is bringing upon them in punishment for their sins. God is saying to those who will trust him, as you go through this, and you will, it will not utterly overwhelm you. I will be with you. This is not a promise that, um, that no Christian will ever be burned in martyrdom. Or drowned in martyr. These promises are eternal promises. That though you die for the cause of Christ, you will live. 
He has you. And even for national Israel, even in this lifetime, I think there is an undergirding promise here that not all of Israel will be destroyed. That throughout every age, God preserves a remnant of Israel. Though he is mad, though he is destroying a vast quantity of them, he will preserve a remnant. And not just a remnant that stay alive, but a remnant who trust him and believe him and walk with him. And find purpose in the midst of these trials and these hardships. Now, in terms of his anger at sin, God would be justified to wipe out all of Israel. And he almost did down to one man, Moses. Do you remember? God was so angry with Israel, he wanted to wipe them all out as a nation. But for his promise to Abraham, preserve one man, Moses, and rebuild from there. So his anger at this nation is such that he would be justified in complete annihilation. But he has chosen to preserve a remnant throughout every generation. It's, it's, it's inferred from many texts that you read, and Paul defends it explicitly in the book of Romans, that God preserves for himself a remnant in this nation. Even when the nation is wicked, there is a remnant who walk with him and believe him. And that remnant is being told, trust me, and these trials and these hardships, though you die, will not utterly sweep you away. You can walk through these with me. I want you to walk through them with me. And as I levy out my discipline, I want to be there for you and strengthen your hand to glorify me. One illustration of this for you and me, we don't live in Israel being under attack, but we do live in a sin-cursed world. In the Garden of Eden, God assured Adam and Eve that in the day you eat of this, you will be under a death sentence. The day you eat in it, dying you shall die. And in the judgment... He told us that there would be curses upon uh, childbearing. It would be done in pain. That there would be curses upon the labor of man. That it would be done by the sweat of your brow. That there would be thorns and diseases. This is the general curse of God upon the earth in this age in which we live. Do you get a pass from that? Do you get a pass from aging and illness? I wish you did, but sadly, you do not. Now, health and wealth preaching teaches that you do. Health and wealth preaching teaches that when you're a Christian, childbirth doesn't hurt. I've actually heard a sermon on this, so it's true. Kids, I'm, I'm, I'm mocking right now. Okay, sorry. Um, the, um, the childbirth does not hurt, that when you die, you just go to sleep. There's a, for a Christian that is full of faith, that death and childbirth are a beautiful thing. That's health and wealth preaching. Do you understand how cruel that is? When you are suffering from the pains of cancer, not only do you have a physical problem, you have a spiritual problem. You don't even know God. Or if you do, you have such weak faith that he's turned his back on you. It is cruel. It is heretical, and it is cruel, and it is not the gospel. It is an anti-gospel. Listen to what Peter says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. This is in the context of suffering persecution. Uh, It's not a health and wealth kind of an environment. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, now I have a problem with this verse. This is pretty stunning. Uh, uh, It it, it is time for for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There is a judgment that is represented here by persecution in the context of 1 Peter 4. There is a judgment that is beginning at the household of God. 
and it is going to continue to the unsaved. And, and so God seems to be saying, church, you do not get a pass from the fall of mankind and my judgment on the earth for that. In fact, in fact, judgment may just begin at your house. And if it begins and if the life of good believers can be so hurtful and so harmful in, in a fallen world, what does that tell you about hell and the reality of hell? Do you think God is kidding? Do you think hell is not as hot as Jesus Christ said it is, that the worm is going to not eat away at you eternally? If the judgment on sin in this world is coming to pass and even children are suffering diseases, that the curse of God makes, what does that mean for eternity? It means you had better believe it. First Peter continues, if the righteous is scarcely saved, that word scarcely saved is not referring to eternal salvation. It's talking about being saved from the judgment of this era on this land. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The Bible tells you the rest of that story. Jesus spoke about hell, I believe, more than any other person recorded in the Bible. He did not lie. Therefore, Peter continues, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If you're suffering today, I am very sorry for you. There's three people in pain in our church this week I've been praying for. And I am very sorry to see that happen. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Do not forsake him in these hard times. This is everything that God said it would be, the curse of sin on mankind, bringing death to this world. It is just a bitter truth of reality. But it also speaks to the truth of God's word for eternity. So what kind of trials might Israel face? Uh, again, the contrast of water and fire just tells us all manner of trials. The, the entirety of the spectrum of human hardship was going to be theirs. But there is a promise that if you will trust God, if you will walk with Him, He will be with you, verse 2. You will not be overwhelmed. You will not be burned, scorched. In other words, through all the suffering and hardship, you will still be there. You will still be God's child. You will still be full of purpose in your life. And you will still be able to honor him and earn eternal reward for how you have responded to the hardships. This is an eternal promise. Let's go to our second point here this morning. God declares his relationship with his chosen people to be entirely different from his relationship with the world. And Christian, you need to know that God doesn't deal with you the way he deals with his enemies. Now look at verse 3. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. Uh, what's going on there? Egypt, I'm giving up Egypt as your ransom. My understanding as Isaiah writes this is that Babylon is about to become the world power. And they will be replaced by, by Persia after that. And so, um, now, it, it, typically, you had a counterbalancing power in the south, Egypt. 
and beneath them, Cush. Uh, during this era, as I recall, Cush was more powerful than Egypt and kind of ruled Egypt. And, and then uh, Seba, we don't know exactly what that is, but we think probably northern Africa, a large nation. And, and what God seems to be saying is, in order to stage your punishment by Babylon, I am giving up Egypt. I am just... I am letting them become destroyed. I am giving up peoples for you, peoples for your punishment, so that Babylon can come and take you into exile and destroy you. And so God is saying, you need to understand that I relate to them differently than you. I am giving them up for you, for your cause. So he said, I give up, I give men in return for you, verse 4, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring. Now notice, I will bring your offspring. Uh, you personally reading this back in the day of Isaiah, you're going to be dead and gone and resurrected when this happens. But I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, and I will gather you. Verses 4 and 5. So, um, again, as I understand the text, Egypt and Cush, they're, 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 they were not winning the world power struggle. And uh, if anyone could have turned back the Babylonians, uh, Egypt and Cush would have been your best candidates for doing so in that day. Allowing them to be defeated was God's agenda for Israel. Uh, Or perhaps he's speaking even of later on when Cyrus comes to power and God delivers Israel from the east and allows them to come back home. Perhaps he's even talking then. Either way, the nations are nothing compared to the value that God places on his chosen Israel. We saw a psalm on Wednesday night, Psalm 4, that admonished us that we need to know something about God's care for us. The verse begins with a verb, but no, but no. And this word no is an experiential knowledge. Uh, The illustration that I saw in the commentary I was using for this was when you are engaged, you, you know your spouse, you know intellectually some things about your spouse, but after 30 years of marriage, you have this experience of having walked through life and you really know your spouse after 30 years. That's the kind of knowledge here. So you're to know something experientially. What is it that you are to know? That God has set apart the godly for himself. You you need to know that you are set apart, that you are different. You are among the godly, and then he continues, the Lord hears when I call him. See, when God brought catastrophe into Pharaoh's life, he did so to harden his heart so that God could be glorified in judging Pharaoh in the most severe manner. He brought catastrophe into Pharaoh's life to harden his heart. When God brings catastrophe into your life, it's a whole different agenda. He does not want to see your heart harden. He is not trying to push you away. He is trying to discipline and bring you back. Or he's trying to bring discipline into your life and prepare you for something that he has in the future for you. God has all kinds of agendas for you and hardship. Destroying you, hardening your heart, is not one of them. If you're among the godly, God has set you apart for himself. You need to know this. He may be reproving, rebuking, or teaching this is what Israel enjoys over all the other nations, even in their times of trials and hardship. They're, those are ultimately designed to drive them back into the arms of God. And it's remarkable, is it not, that Israel still exists today? It's remarkable that they are such a, a focus of attention in the media from time to time, a focus of attention from the nations of the world. They're so small and, 
in population and in geography. They are part of a larger epic. And you are part of a larger epic than your individual life as well. How you invest your life will bring great joy when this time of homecoming happens. Verse number four, key verse today, key verse. If you're asleep, wake up and pay attention to these two adjectives and this verb, precious, honored, and love. Look at, look at number four. This, this is written to people who are being punished by God. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Can we marvel at the election of God? He's chosen Israel. Israel is so wicked as to need remedial punishment in the most severe ways, 70-year exile. And yet God can assure them in this context they are precious, they are honored, they are loved. Do you see the value of being fully known by God, faults and all, and yet being precious in his eyes? being honored by your God, treated with the dignity of someone made in his image, and being loved through it all. This is a model for a spouse when your spouse has upset you, no doubt. See, you have made your choice to love her or to love him. And so even when you're working through problems, even when you're confronting sin, and you will, they are precious. They are honored. And because you made a lifelong commitment, they are loved. And that relationship and living out that love is more important than your happiness, than your peace, than your anything. You've committed yourself in a most holy bond there. So this is definitely a model for a spouse when your spouse has upset you. Precious, honored, loved. This is also a model for church and church members when we've offended each other, precious, honored, and loved. And it may not feel like it in the moment. I mean, keep in mind, this is being stated in the context of bringing an attack, a punishing attack on Israel. This is not about feelings. It is about truth that you are to maintain that people are, God's people are precious. They are to be honored. They are to be loved. God promises at the end of time, of this age at least, God promises a glorious time of homecoming, verses 5 through 7. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons and daughters, uh, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, when it says bring them from the north, south, east, and west, I don't think this is a call to return from the exile in Babylon that happens under King Cyrus. Uh, That would be a weak shadow of what this is talking about. I'm understanding this to be a national reunification of Israel, not just geographically to the land of Israel, but spiritually to Yahweh, to love and serve Yahweh. I would understand this to be the thousand-year kingdom spoken of by, in the book of Revelation. An end-time gathering. A time for 
your offspring, if you're reading this back then, verse number five, they, I, you know, in other words, your life will have concluded, this is for them. Play your part now, and you will be very glad when this day comes. You will be rewarded by your heavenly Father. But this is for your offspring in the future, and the older I get, the less inclined I am to think that I'm going to be alive, undead, and unresurrected when this kingdom comes along. I will play my part. I will very likely die, and I am expecting to be resurrected and very glad for the unfolding of God's plans. God has many prerogatives over us as creator and owner. He reiterates his status in verse 7, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He has many prerogatives. And he could use his prerogatives and his ownership to be as harsh as he wanted to be, as ruthlessly cruel in punishing sin and sinners as he wanted to be. But he uses it for our redemption. Look at verse 1. But now says he, uh, says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God uses his creative status as creator for redemption. He's chosen Israel, and there will one day be a national redemption. God is always uh, he is always uh, proactive in restoring relationships. Uh, listen to this verse about Jesus Christ in Romans 5 and when he was sacrificed. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God made the first move. No human being alive other than the God-man Jesus, no human being alive uh, deserved God's favor. And while all, and, and no human being alive had any basis, any real basis for justification, only a promise that a Messiah would be sacrificed for them. And so while all are still in their sin, at enmity with God, Jesus Christ dies for us. And the sin accounts of the past were settled for those who were looking forward to their Messiah. And verse 7 just piles on here in, in Isaiah 43, 7, uh, uh, describing these people as called by God's name and created for his glory. The truth of the universe is focused on God. The truth of your existence, the purpose of it is focused on God and his glory. And God gives you a purpose and a share in glorifying him. You are personally to walk with God every day of your life. Participate in bringing Him glory. Read your Bible, pray to Him, and obey the Scriptures. Obey the Spirit leading in your heart as the Word of God comes to bear on your actions. Ask Him to guide the steps of your life. Ask Him to guide the words of your mouth. So Israel had failed. In context, they're facing decades of punishment that had not even yet begun. Yet Isaiah prophesies of upcoming judgment for a blind and disobedient nation that God loved and called and will protect. God would judge, but God would also strengthen and preserve throughout that judgment. Punishment is not evidence for God rejecting you. Quite the opposite for the believer. You are different. God brings hard circumstances into your life. Our nation could fall into chaos 
and create hardship in your life. The Spirit could apply that to you to say, this hardship is for your sin, for your materialism, for your pride. Whatever, whatever the Spirit lays on your heart, uh, God could take down an entire nation for you and your spiritual walk with Him. That would be a good thing, though hard to bear. Therefore, He assures us, I will go with you through this trial. You will not be utterly washed away by the rivers. You will not be burned away by the fire. Do not ever doubt, Christian, that God cherishes you as precious, as honored, somebody to be esteemed, made in his image, trusting him, and that he covers you with his love. Don't ever doubt that, even in the hard times. There will be a homecoming. There will be a regathering. You will be delighted with your reward for faithfulness and walking with him in that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your love. God, thank you that though we have sinned against you in multiple ways, that, Father, we are cherished by you, who is most holy. And, Father, we are honored And God, that is very quizzical, that you would honor your people Israel, and by extension, I'm understanding that you would honor us. And Father, we have no doubt of your love. You gave your son to die for us. We have no doubt he is coming again to redeem his own. And Father, we have no doubt that you will be glorified in the end. Father, I pray that you would remove all doubts when we are tempted to do something that does not glorify you, that is not patient, that is not loving, that, Father, uh, is not your will for our lives. Help us, God, to obey you, trusting in the eternal rewards that you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I ask Grant to come at this time.